there and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Everything is on the Table edition. It's Thursday, January 15th, 2015, and my name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm an editorial writer at the Journal when I'm not hosting our weekly show. I'm joined in the newsroom studio this week by business columnist Gary Lamphier. Hello. City columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. And provincial affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hi. Today, we are talking oil prices because what else is there to talk about? I mean, honestly, it has once again become the all-consuming topic in Alberta's political scene and, and I think in everyone's daily lives. So let's get right into it. Gary, the last time the four of us sat down together to talk about falling oil prices, it was November 6th. I went back and checked and it was the crudest cut of all edition. And I remember I entered feeling worried. But I walked away feeling vaguely comforted that the drop might not be as bad as we feared, more of a pinch. So what's happened since then, and where are prices today? Well, first of all, I lied. I mean, let's get that on the table. Oh, you lied? Okay, well, or yeah, you, you, it, it, what, so what you expected, it, it's worse than you expected. I, I think for every, every forecaster that I know uh, and that I read of um, has been wrong. Um, I think everyone's got egg on their face over this. And it's not just because of the, the magnitude of the decline, it's the speed of it. I mean, I went back to October 1. Prices were twice what they are today, uh, October the 1st. They're about 90 bucks a barrel. They're about 46 and a half bucks today. So th- that is an amazing freefall in a very short period of time. So uh, why is this? I mean, the, I think the, the, the single most important, uh, I think, issue or factor at play here is how resolute the Saudis, UAE, and Kuwait have been and their determination to drive the price down. And I think that has been underestimated from day one by every forecaster, every central banker, uh, every economist that I know. I, I don't think anyone truly believed when push came to shove that the Saudis were going to stand firm, and they have. And here we are in January 2015. It's still falling. And and the prices, the price forecasts have tracked down. It's just like going down a staircase. With each passing week, the forecasts get ratcheted down, and all the uh, economists and analysts are doing is tracking the price lower. Uh, and so the forecasts at, uh, of late have gone uh, from 50-plus uh, prior to the end of the year, I would say, would be a consensus forecast down into the 30s now. Uh, that's a, a, a common figure. Many economists and forecasters saying prices could dip into the 30s. Wow. So here we are at 46. Uh, I guess the good news is that we're most of the way there. Uh, if we, we started falling at 107, we're at 46. So right. another 10 bucks to go. And okay. I, I have a question for Gary. Yeah. Why are they so resolute in keeping the prices low? They, they are determined to crush the U.S. shale industry. And uh, U.S. shale is still producing nine... Uh, sorry, U.S. in total and aggregate is producing more than 9 million barrels a day. And the U.S. Uh, uh, Energy Information Administration just put out a report a couple of days ago, and they predict uh, U.S. production will continue to grow right through next year. So part of the reason for that is that uh, supply demand is quite inelastic, as the economists like to say. Uh, you can't turn off the faucet overnight. Uh, there's a lot of uh, producers that have to keep producing because they've got contracts. They've got shipping contracts. They've got workers to pay. You can't just shut in production overnight. So this is going to go on. And uh, the only uh, way that uh, we're going to see a significant change in the dynamics here is if the Saudis and their friends within OPEC changed their tune. And so far, there's no indication of that. How do the costs work in the U.S. compared to up in the in Alberta oil sands? I mean, how much is it to squeeze a barrel of oil out of the, the Bakken oil field? Well, there's no one number. Uh, 
each play has its own dynamics, but it's safe to say that the majority of, of wells at 46 bucks are not economic. Uh, the West Permian Basin in Texas is also another high-cost area. So there's a lot of production that's uneconomic right now. A lot yeah. of producers losing money. And, yeah. so, and so as this is happening, we heard a, a word that was a little terrifying here. I, we, we heard the recession word. Paula, why, why are we hearing that word now? Well, the Conference Board of Canada, I believe, were the ones who said the dreaded R word. I mean, a recession. I heard people on the radio say, well, you know, can define it in different ways. No, you can't. A recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. That would be extraordinary for Canada. So, you know, I spoke to John Rose, who's the city of Edmonton's chief economist late last week. He said he wasn't predicting a recession here in this local economy because he said there was so much built up momentum in the economy and so much, I guess, con constricted supply. So he said things like, you know, we don't have enough condominiums, we don't have enough apartment units, we don't have enough houses, and it, we're not instantly going to stop building those things. So, you know, he wasn't predicting a recession, but you can have a lot of slowdown in growth before you get to a recession. I mean, if we were growing, you're not going to be able to see this on the radio this much, and now we're going to grow this much. Technically, that's not a recession. But if you're the person who got laid off, you may not be worrying about the technical definition of the term. Yeah. And Graham, how has all of this, what we t changed what's being said by the premier and folks at the Alberta legislature? Yes, yeah, interesting. The premier spoke this week at a luncheon on Tuesday. He does not buy into the recession talk. Of course, it's understandable. He's, he's a politician trying to keep things relatively upbeat, <clears throat> Excuse me. even though he's been talking a lot about uh, how we're taking a major hit. But it turned a corner this week. He began talking about listening to people who may be in favor or who are in favor of a sales tax. No premier I've even <coughs> reported on has ever even embraced the idea of talking about a sales tax. And now you've got uh, this premier who's been saying now for eight months since he became a candidate for leadership, been saying no sales tax all last year, no way a sales tax might change the tax regime. Look at that, no sales tax. This week is now saying he'll listen to people who are discussing a sales tax. That's a major shift. And that's showing you the um, it's a measurement of just how much trouble the government is seeing itself in right now fiscally, looking at a deficit. Um, looking at a sales tax. We're now hearing that um, the session will start, but not until March. Normally it'll start in February, and the budget won't be coming out until the end of March. Another indication of the troubles we're having putting things together. And to put this in context, Sarah, remember that just a couple of weeks ago when the Wild Rose crossed the floor en masse, part of the you know agreement that they signed was that there would not be a sales tax, there would not be a discussion of a sales tax. I don't even, I don't think the ink on that agreement is dry, and, and here we oh, you're are. You're right. You're totally right. Well, and what he's not just talking about sales tax, is he? he he's he's talking about other taxes as well. Well, you know, one thing, I, I knew that the universe had changed when Rick Dolphin, who's a quite conservative political analyst at the legislature, started tweeting weeks ago about an increased gasoline tax and whether that would make sense. You know, and it's fascinating because you often hear people who are on the left or green side of the scale saying a gasoline tax is a is a good kind of a carbon tax, but it's the first time I've heard people on the right side of the spectrum talking about uh, a gasoline tax as a revenue generator for the province. Colby Caution McLean's is talking about a gasoline tax again this week. So you're seeing people who never talked about these things suddenly uh, articulating that as an argument. And the problem's going to be here: the sales tax, sorry, a gasoline tax might raise a billion dollars if. Prentice is right. He's talking about a seven to ten billion dollar hole. You got to look at other things like a sales tax, changing the income tax system. Uh, there's three things they can do. One is raise taxes, cut spending, or borrow money. 
And right now he's looking at all three um, in, in some way. Again, this is they're, they're tied up right now in the budget planning process. It's taking a lot longer than they had thought. And this is an indication of just how much trouble Alberta is in, and just in a matter of a few months. We've certainly seen the price of oil rise and fall before. I mean, there isn't anything particularly unusual. We've had, we've had severe drops in oil prices in the past. What's different this time is that we don't have the cushion that natural gas used to provide. Natural gas used to be a really, really, really important revenue stream in this province, putting in $7, $8 billion a year into the provincial purse. Now it's barely putting in a billion, and forecasts that in two years it might be only putting in half a billion dollars. I mean, half a billion dollars sounds like a lot of money, but not compared to $7 billion. And if you lose gas and oil at the same time, then you're facing a really, really difficult crunch. What kind of impact do you think talk of additional taxes will have on the, the business community, Gary? Are, do you, are you hearing any feedback yet on that? Well, I, th- I think it's going to have an immediate effect at retail, the retail level. And, you know, we've already seen, uh, I mean, just today we had this Target announcement closing down all the stores in Canada, uh, which, of course, is a, a Target issue and a national issue, not an Alberta issue. But Sony as well today. Sony as well. Good point. And so I, th- I think the retailers are going to feel a pinch immediately because of this decline in oil prices. People mm-hmm. are just going to have less uh, job security and uh, the people that uh, are, are uh, losing their jobs, of course, they're not going to be spending. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to say that, uh, you know, lower gasoline prices equate to a big tax break. And, and that's true in many places. And in many places that will actually be felt in terms of the way consumers spend their money. But I think in Alberta, it's, it's not going to be a plus. It's not really going to help very much. It certainly won't offset the negative impact of lower oil. There's another way that the premier has been talking about the lower oil prices on, on the one side, he's talking about the revenue issue. He's also been talking, though, about the civil service. And oh, yes. I, I've, even on the current, on the CBC this morning, he, he talked about how, I think, what was his phrase? Alberta, he says, has the h- highest paid civil service. or uh, That was basically what he was saying. And he was saying that that's going to have to be addressed. Graham, what, what's going on there? Like, how can they do that when there's contracts in place? Well, there's contracts in place. But it's also, uh, it's interesting, the response from the unions right now. They're really upset. They're saying, don't blame the unions. Don't blame the workers teachers don't forget and doctors took a wage freeze so so they're saying that they have been making compromises and sacrifices for the problems so but this is him trying to get a discussion going saying we've got to rein in uh, spending in this province and I think this is going to it's an indication of just how drastic things may be getting this year mm-hmm. and and there could be a lot of fights going on you got to wonder why he'd be doing this now if in fact we're heading into an election I'm not saying we are but that's the indication we're getting Hmm. Paul, isn't this what you always wanted, though, for <laughs> everything, on everything the table. to be on the table and for us to talk about a sensible revenue s- you know, system and stream? Aren't yes, you getting yes. your wish? Sadly, the time to talk about these things is when you're not in crisis. Mm. I mean, you're right, because I've sat in this booth every day for the last year and a half that we've been doing this podcast, and practically every episode I've said we need to talk about a sales tax. The time to talk about a sales tax, however, is probably not, as Gary points out, when consumer confidence is crashing. I mean, ideally, you want to be counter-cyclical. You want to be, you know, talking about raising taxes at a time when the economy is really strong, and then people don't, you know, don't feel the pinch so much. Uh, A sales tax now is going to be a harder sell. On the other hand, I do have to say, that I am excited to see people 
across the political spectrum finally being engaged in this grown-up discussion. Uh, you know, when Ted Morton, Alberta's former finance minister, wrote a piece for the Globe and Mail late last week calling for a sales tax, um, it was quite extraordinary. Of course, I don't remember him calling for a sales tax when he was the finance minister. No, I think um, he, it's It's a lot he, easier to do those things when you're not running for the election. He actually did raise it. Um, he raised it as a possibility. Oh, uh, that's right. No, no sales tax at this point. And the headlines were all... Morton opens the door to sales tax, and then <laughs> a day or so later in the house, he got a planted question from Diana McQueen saying, are you really thinking about a sales tax? And he said, no. In the short term, the answer is no. The medium term answer is no, and the long term answer is no. Mm-hmm. So he raised it. He was thinking about it. Then he raised it. He got slapped down had to disavow any knowledge of a sales tax. While we're talking <laughs> about these theoretical things, what's happening in terms of jobs in the oil patch, Gary? Can you give me a sense well, of what $50 it's, oils meant? It's going to be a tough six months ahead. You know, the Suncor announcement about 1,000 job cuts this week is rippling across the oil patch. There's mm. a lot of anxiety out there. I'm hearing from people in the towers in Calgary saying that, uh, you know, they're hearing from fellow workers who are nervous about their jobs. So this is going to have a big impact throughout the oil patch in terms of job losses for months to come. There's also going to be, um, you know, a freeze on investment. I mean, there's just not going to be spending, new spending. Uh, even in other areas of the economy, I think, because everyone is so nervous. In fact, right now, the world feels like it's going slightly crazy. It's not just oil. Copper hit multi-year lows this week. We've got this crazy currency thing happening in Switzerland where mm. they, the net effect is that their currency is up like 30% overnight against the euro, which apparently is going to have huge impacts in Eastern Europe. Uh, mortgages there are apparently denominated in Swiss francs by and large. Uh, you got all the Russian... Uh, you know, pals of Putin who've stashed their cash in Switzerland who are suddenly a lot richer overnight. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a crazy world we're living in right now. But, you and, know, and, and, and for Putin too, right? I mean, you, know, you think Jim Prentice is in trouble. Now imagine you're Vladimir Putin right. and you're trying to run your country with $48 oil. I mean, the the economic consequences for Russia, for Venezuela, for all, you know, it's fine for the Saudis and the Kuwaitis to stand firm. There are lots of other economies that are oil dependent, not just us and not just them. True. So what do we need to watch for in the days and weeks ahead? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't. Honestly, I think we're gonna we're gonna be into a tough period here. We're gonna be letting, writing a lot of negative news stories and columns, and uh, that's reality. I, I wrote a few months ago. No, we're not going back into two thousand and eight. I wish I hadn't written that sentence mm. at the top of my column back in October. At the time, I did not think we we're going to be going into this kind of uh, period in Alberta. But unfortunately, that's what it feels like. It feels like a repeat of 2008, 2009. And the right. one thing we haven't mentioned is the federal government today announced that it's posting its budget later than expected, not until April. Mm. So, I mean, clearly they're trying to wait out and see what happens. So that's got a whole round of speculation going again, uh, you know, all over the Ottawa Twitter channels about when a federal election might be. So, you know, we're looking to see the timing of a provincial election. We're looking to see the timing of a federal election. And we're looking to see, I mean, if Jim Prentice is going to go to war with the public service in Alberta, that could get very ugly very quickly for a whole lot of people. Yeah. Graham, so no early election call, you don't uh, think? I'm not saying that at all. Oh. Um, I, my source is saying no, but a lot of people are saying it will. They, he will go early just to get ahead of even more bad news later this year. He may be waiting as well to see what the federal government's going to do. If they go early, he can't go early. He has to sort of talk to Harper and see what his plans are. 
But again, the session is not starting until March, and then the budget's not coming up until the end of March. Uh, we're discussing uh, these days a deficit in Alberta. The federal government keeps saying they're going to balance the books. We'll see what happens. Maybe they can balance it this year. They can't balance it next year. So again, they may want to go early to get ahead of bad news. And we have to wait and see here, too. I mean, we're still waiting for the shoes to drop on the Wild Rose situation. I mean, who's going to be in cabinet? Who's not going to be in cabinet? Uh, you know, and, the, you know, the Wild Rose who crossed because they said they did, Brentus needed all the help he could get in a crisis. If there's ever been a time that we're going to need a strong opposition, it's going to be now and they're not going to be there. Well, I think we need to move from that happy, happy note to good stuff from the gallery. That's our weekly segment where we share something that we've enjoyed, usually with a political connection. It can be a book, TV show, podcast, anything. Uh, who, Graham, Paula, well, quickly, want to start I'll just us off? Say, um, I've been quite enjoying their national columnists, like Andrew Coyne, especially on the Charlie Hebdo, mm. um, his, his feelings about what today, today was talking about humor. Um, and it's sort of us versus those who don't have a sense of humor. He had a very good column, I think it was last week, about um, people taking offense to things, which reminded me uh, again of um, the comedian Ricky Gervais, who says it's impossible to give offense. You can only take offense to things. So I guess Andrew Coyne said some really interesting columns to me. Sort of he's, taking, he's taking a step away from usual federal politics and talking about um, what this means in terms of freedom of the press. Okay, I'll post those links. Thanks. Gary, do you want to add something in? Well, I, I'm sort of a sucker for Zamboni stories, and I loved, <laughs> I loved Paula's <laughs> story about the world's largest unused Zamboni shed. I thought that was pretty fabulous, but I don't want to sound like a homer here, so I'll, I'll uh, also mention that uh, I was watching the Bill Maher show on U.S. Cable uh, uh, a night ago, and uh, Salman Rushdie, Rushdie was on. They were talking about the Charlie Hebdo issue and uh, uh, the tragic deaths of the, the staff and uh, terrorism in general, and Anyway, I thought Salman Rushdie made a, a brilliant point. He said, can you imagine reading newspapers and magazines that only published respectful cartoons? Yes. Um, How I just, dull. You know, I just don't think that, that that's really on. And I thought uh, that was a, a very incisive point and uh, well put by okay. a guy who knows a little bit about terrorism. I'll find the show and we'll put up a link. I'm going to recommend something a little slightly different. I'm going to recommend something in the more of the municipal affairs category. I'm going to recommend a, a, a website and a series that... Uh, American Public Media's Marketplace, a show about economics and business, uh, their wealth and poverty desk have done. It's called York and Fig, the intersection of change. And what they did is they actually set up a bureau with four reporters and producers in an area of uh, Los Angeles called Highland Park that is in the middle of gentrifying. So they moved in in August and were on the ground as this neighborhood undergoes a rapid change in its dynamics. And I know um, in Edmonton, we talk about changing neighborhoods and what happens happens when uh, neighborhoods get uh, get gentrified and it just they had lots of interesting stories and the, a lot of getting into how people who have lived there a long time feel and how the newcomers feel and the dynamics between the two and it's it's a really good series and, and website and I've enjoyed it so that's York and Fig the intersection of change Paula take us home well uh, as you know Sarah I recently got Netflix which has changed my life completely <laughs> and w one of the things that it's she done she means no more that's right has given me access to uh, PBS frontline documentaries at a time when it's convenient to watch that's them. what you watch on Netflix oh okay well, anyway I watch some other things okay too. all right but uh 
But what I was watching this week was a remarkable documentary from Frontline. It actually first aired on television last year, but it's just come up on Netflix now called The Secret State of North Korea. And it's as relevant now as it's ever been because what the documentary really looks at is the way social activists are using social media and popular culture to eat away at the foundation of the North Korean regime, smuggling in copies of James Bond movies, smuggling out videos that people have shot on their own phones. Uh, And it's a remarkably hopeful piece. It's about the only thing I've ever seen about North Korea that made me feel hopeful because it's documenting the fact that for the first time ever, people inside North Korea are finally getting a look at what the outside world looks like and are finally rising up and saying, wait a minute, you know, why are we living this way? And so, you know, it's certainly not a Pollyanna piece, but while we're talking about the impact of you know, of of comedy and social media, and you know, and, and this may help to explain a little bit too about you know the, the regime's reaction to the interview. So don't see the interview. Watch uh, the Secret State of North Korea on Frontline. Okay, that's it for this week. Many thanks to Paula Graham and Gary for joining me, and our deep appreciation to videographer Ryan Jackson, who's been with us to capture a video clip from our panel that's available for viewing on EdmontonJournal.com. You'll notice we're testing out a slightly shorter podcast length, slightly shorter this week. I'd love to hear what you think. Do you like it better or do you prefer a sitcom length podcast? You can let us know what you think on Twitter. I'm at SC O'Donnell. You can hear previous episodes of the podcast long and short at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or through the Edmonton Journal's SoundCloud feed. The show is also available on iTunes, so subscribe and the press gallery will be there waiting for you every Friday around lunchtime. We will convene again next week in the press gallery.